Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 34, Austerlitz. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope everyone is enjoying the first few days of fall here in the Northern Hemisphere. I think this is one of the strangest years regarding weather that we've had here in the Northeast that I can possibly remember in all my 33 years on this earth, but hey, such is life. And I really appreciate everyone's patience for the release of this episode, but given that it is going to be one of the longer episodes in the series, I did want to make sure that we covered all of the bases. And my goal is to send our listeners into fall with maybe one of our most anticipated episodes to date, and that, of course, is Napoleon's masterpiece at the Battle of Austerlitz. Now, over the previous two episodes... We spoke about two of the three main theaters in the War of the Third Coalition, Napoleon's march through Central Europe and Nelson and Villeneuve's clashes in the Atlantic. But we left out the seldom-talked-about third theater of the war, which was, of course, Italy. Now, much of this is because, save for a few engagements, there wouldn't be, relatively speaking, much action in Italy until 1806. And that's exactly what Napoleon was hoping for. He wanted to divert Austrian attention down there while forcing them to be so far away from Central Europe so that they could not reinforce Mack's army at all. Napoleon was hoping that his army of Italy, led by none other than Marshal André Massena, would do just enough to keep the Austrians at bay while he finished the job in Germany. And so with that said, let's go south a bit and give a quick update as to what was going on in Italy. So to reiterate, We mentioned back in episode 32 that Napoleon wanted to draw the main Austrian force down to Italy, basically the opposite of what the French had done in the two previous Italian campaigns, while crushing their smaller contingent under Field Marshal Mack in Germany. Now, while we know this was successful, Napoleon still did need to send a French contingent down to Italy to cover his southern flank and ensure that the French-friendly Lombardy would be protected. So, He sent Marshal Massena's Army Corps down to Italy to hold off Austrian Archduke Charles' larger force to ensure that they would not interfere in the campaigns in Central Europe. However, the main issue was that Massena's army was significantly outnumbered, like 50,000 to 120,000 outnumbered. So Massena, understanding the numerical disadvantage, needed to set up his defenses and prepare for defensive war that would, hopefully, wear down the Austrians enough to prevent their march back up and reinforce Mack. But Archduke Charles, well, he was no dummy. In fact, Napoleon was lucky that Charles was sent south as opposed to Bavaria because he likely would have led a much more spirited defense against Napoleon's Grand Armée. Charles, for his part, was even worried that Mack, who, if we remember, had lobbied Emperor Francis to invade Bavaria, was being far too aggressive, and he was concerned that Mack could be overconfident and then overrun. But Francis was confident that Napoleon would repeat his attacks on Italy, and, knowing that his younger brother was the superior commander, sent him to Italy to ensure Veneto's safety. To say that was a giant miscalculation is a pretty big understatement. 
In fact, Charles, despite having the numerical superiority, took up defensive positions in Italy because he was worried that should Mack be overrun, he would need to defend the Austrian southern flank from complete French encirclement. Some men are just meant to be leaders, and others are Field Marshal Mack. Now, Massena, meanwhile, ordered his positions fortified. With the Adige being the border between French Lombardy and Austrian Benetto, Massena positioned 5,000 troops on the quadrilateral fortresses, which, if we remember from our episodes on the Siege of Mantua, were Verona, Legnago, Pescheria del Garda, and Mantua. Now, Napoleon had ordered Massena to concentrate his forces in the center, hoping to likely split the Austrians in two, but Massena, as we know, a brilliant commander in his own right, would send many more probing missions further south to offer additional distractions to the Austrians, making them respect the fact that the French could attack from anywhere. Napoleon then allowed Massena to offer up a truce to Charles to buy additional time, something which Charles actually accepted. The truce basically stated that neither side would attack the other without six days' notice, and, as we saw with the Ulm campaign, having this much time was just enough for Napoleon to land a decisive blow. And with that victory now seemingly inevitable, just as Charles had predicted, Massena sent word on October 14th of his intentions to attack. Three days later, with Napoleon at Munich, Charles saw the writing on the wall and ordered his troops to withdraw. But he did want to defend themselves one time against a French attack before they headed home. And this attack would come at the Battle of Verona on October 18th. Now look, we unfortunately don't have the time to go into every major battle on the Third Italian Campaign, but I do think it's important to mention it, given how pivotal a role it played in delaying the Austrian reinforcements from coming to Mack's defense, thus allowing Napoleon to, well, basically blitz right through Germany. But having said that, let's give a quick Cliff Notes version on the two major engagements of the Italian Campaign in 1805, with the first being the aforementioned Battle of Verona. Now, after Massena sent word of his attack, he decided to target the Austrian fortified town of Veronetta, believing that this would do maximum damage to the Austrian forces there, while also establishing a bridgehead on the right bank of the river. And so, on the morning of October 18th, Massena personally led this force through the lightly defended Castavecchio Bridge, and the French would attack the Austrian forces throughout the day, laying waste to over 1,500 Austrians at the cost of only 400 of their own. Now, Austrian Field Marshal Joseph Vukasovic was the man in charge of defending the bridge crossing, but he only allocated two small battalions to the critical artery, and he was quickly overrun. Now, while the Austrians would ultimately keep the French out of Veronetta, their establishment of a bridgehead on the Austrian side of the Adige was a major French victory, and, combined with the news of Napoleon's victory at Ulm two days later, it set the stage for the decisive engagement at Caldiero on October 30th. After learning of Napoleon's victory at Ulm, Massena now wanted to chase the Austrians right out of Italy, ordering his men to go on the offensive on October 28th, mere hours after learning of Napoleon's successful campaign in Bavaria. Massena then ordered his men to march in Austrian-controlled territory from across Verona and begin their assault. Archduke Charles, now fully aware of the disaster up in Germany, decided that if he did not engage Massena at Caldiero, he would have to fend off a French army at his heels as they marched to reinforce Vienna, now completely undefended against Napoleon, by the way. Rather than risk that, he chose to pitch battle against Massena, hoping to defeat him and then ensure safe passage for his troops back home to Austria. 
Charles began his preparations by marching his troops west to Caldiero and setting up defensive positions throughout the town and the road leading to it, known as the Verona Road, a strategic road going to Lombardy. He split his army into three main groups defending the city, while Massena would split his army into two groups on opposite sides of the Verona Road. Massena decided against using his entire force, something which later irked Napoleon, deploying only around 33,000 troops to Charles' 49,000. Massena was waiting for his generals to deploy a flank maneuver, but Charles decided to attack the French head-on and attacked both French flanks. Multiple French frontal assaults were launched, but they all failed, and the Austrians were able to hold the high ground for the rest of the battle. Now, in the battle center, in Caldiero itself, the French, after a belated start, were able to launch assault after assault, taking the town, losing it, retaking it, losing it again, and then finally retaking it after fierce hand-to-hand combat. Now, the Austrians, exhausted, retreated from the city, and the French had won a strategic portion of the battle by taking Caldiero, splitting the Austrians into two. Now, on the right, the French were initially successful in pushing the Austrians back, though General Jean-Antoine Vedier abandoned the initial order to perform a flank maneuver, turned around to confront the Austrians who were fleeing, and crossed the Adige River. Unfortunately, Verdier's men would encounter the bulk of the Austrian army and had to turn back, unable to chase them out or to perform the full flank that Massena had ordered. As night fell, Charles decided that even though they had the numerical advantage, the attrition from the day's battle was sufficient enough to prevent him from continuing the initiative and crushing the French army. He began his troop pullout that evening, and the Austrians would start the long trek back to Austria once again, unable to hold Italy from French incursion, leaving only a small rear guard to engage the French and distract them from completing a full route. Now, the 1805 Battle of Caldiero has variously been described as a French victory or a draw, depending on who you ask, though the results of it were clearly more favorable to the French than to the Austrians. Massena's victory at Caldiero, yes, I'm calling it a victory, delayed Charles' advance to Bavaria to assist the army of the Danube against Napoleon, and in reality, completely shifted their strategy as to what their next best move would be. Napoleon, ironically, was more critical, claiming that Massena was reckless at Caldiero and had gotten beaten there, though it has been known that both men disagreed constantly despite their mutual respect for one another. Nevertheless, Caldiero would be the final major engagement of the 1805 Italian campaign season, and it gave Napoleon an additional boost as he moved closer and closer to the Austrian interior. And with Italy now covered, let's get back to Napoleon as he marched on from Ulm. Now, after the dust settled from the Ulm campaign, Napoleon and his Grand Armée began their march to Vienna. Wary still about General Kutuzov's 100,000-strong Russian army, linking up with Charles' Italian army of 90,000. After Caldiero, though, his fears were eased somewhat, and he wrote to Josephine that he was on the Grand March. Now, after the Russians got word of the disaster at Ulm, they began to withdraw to the east, uniting with a retreating Austrian army under command of our old friend Michael Kienmayer. You remember, Battle of Hohenlinden, and Michael Kienmayer? Anyway, their retreat was seen as another opportunity by Napoleon, and he wanted to pin them down while the French were still on the initiative. So, he sent Marshals Murat and Lann to intercept them, and they caught up with the Russian rearguard on November 5th at Amstetten. Murat ordered a cavalry charge, but they were quickly repelled, thanks in no large part to the defenses and artillery positions 
of the Russian general Pyotr Bagration. Of Georgian extraction and nicknamed the Eagle, remember Bagration's name. He is going to be playing a prominent role as a formidable opponent to Napoleon later on in our series. Murat then waited for reinforcements, while Lon then arrived and attacked Bagration's positions, which they were then reinforced. By nightfall, the battle had dwindled down, but Bagration's men were successful in protecting their rear, and the French had to retreat back to the main army. In this engagement, the French lost around 1,000 men, while the combined Austro-Russian force lost about 1,300. And while technically inconclusive, the battle can be seen as a tactical coalition victory, since it allowed the continued retreat of the Austro-Russian force back to the Danube. And two days later, the Allies would cross the river, destroying all but one bridge to ensure that their forces were successfully across. The Russians were keen to use the Danube as a way to lure the French into a trap, however. General Kutuzov, feigning a rearguard action at the nearby town of Stein, had hoped to keep the French pursuit moving so that they could encircle one of their armies and crush them. The French, meanwhile, continued to pursue the Russians and Austrians, believing that they were retreating back to Vienna. And so on November 10th, French Marshal Edouard Mortier and General Honoré Gazon attacked the Allied forces at Stein, believing it to be their rearguard. In reality, though, Kutuzov had an entire force waiting for them. The Allies had built small concealed bridges across the Danube the night before and sent their men across. What ensued next was the Battle of Durenstein, in which three Russian columns encircled Mortier's 1st Division. They would not be relieved until almost nightfall, at which point the French had lost close to 5,000 men, nearly 40% of the division led by Gasson. But the Russians, despite their superior numbers, suffered similar casualties, and both sides tried to claim victory, though the fact that Mortier's division survived at all was seen as a miracle given the circumstances. Now, while both sides were able to retreat back to safety, albeit severely wounded, the Austrians perhaps suffered the biggest loss when Field Marshal Johann Schmidt arguably the Austrians' most skilled commander during the German campaigns, was killed at the end of the battle, most likely by friendly fire, as a result of the melee from French reinforcements. Regardless, Gasson received the Légion d'honneur for his heroism in the battle, while Mortier was chastised by Napoleon for being led into the trap, leaving his flanks wide open for encirclement. Nevertheless, Durenstein would play a significant role in shaping Napoleon's strategy in the next three weeks, when he would employ a trap of his own, at Auschwitz. Indeed, some historians see Dernstein as the dress rehearsal to what was to come in less than a month. Now, while all of this simultaneous action was occurring, Napoleon was also busy ensuring that his men were disciplined in worsening weather and difficult terrain. Hundreds of miles from France, Napoleon's supply lines were dangerously thin, and many of his senior officers were vocal about their displeasure with the situation. Still, Napoleon refused to allow his men to pillage the countryside, even threatening reduced rations and flogging to ensure their civility while in foreign territory. Now, flogging, while a common historical punishment, was rare in the French army at the time, and the fact that Napoleon authorized its use just signifies how displeased many of his men were with the fact that they were so far from home without any relief in sight. They were tired, hungry, and perhaps worst of all, freezing. But they needn't worry much longer because they would find shelter soon in the gilded streets of the Austrian capital. Now, on November 13th, Marshals Murat and Lamp 
spotted the Tabor Bridge crossing the Danube and, using probing soldiers, spread a false rumor that an armistice had been signed between France and Austria and that Vienna was declared an open city. Incredibly, the Austrians, under Prince von Auersberg, who would have likely obliterated the French advance guard, took the bait and the French rushed them, diffusing their weapons, and Murat ordered them to vacate the area. With simple deception and decisive bluster, Vienna was in French hands. Though, to be fair, the Austrian high command admittedly did not want to offer much resistance for fear of the city being subjected to a prolonged siege. And in fact, the Habsburg court had already left the city, long resigned to its likely fall, and they headed out to meet with the Russian army. Napoleon, who was reportedly beside himself when he heard the news of Murat-Lan's successful ruse, rushed to the Habsburg palace of Schönbrunn and spent the evening there before entering into Vienna on November 14th in wild pomp. Napoleon, though, did not want to rest on his laurels and was eager to score a decisive victory, and he would stay in Vienna only two nights before continuing on his march. Then, on November 15th, Murat and Lan continued their pursuit of the Russians after taking the Tabor Bridge. General Kutuzov, now faced with an encroaching French army and needing time to reunite with the army under Russian General Friedrich Wilhelm von Buxhoveden, yes, German name, but Russian general, is it 19th century European warfare awesome, sent our old friend Pyotr Bagration's rearguard to delay Murat and Lan's encroaching corps. When the two sides met at Hollebrunn, Murat believed that the entire Russian army was in front of him on the high ground, not realizing it was only just a rearguard. Bagration, meanwhile, knew full well that he was heavily outnumbered, but Murat was hesitant to attack. Bagration then surprised Murat by calling for an armistice, again, both sides not really understanding how outnumbered the other was, and Murat, believing that he was heavily outnumbered, agreed. And when Napoleon was informed of the armistice, he was, let's just say, apoplectic. Writing to Murat, he stated, quote, I cannot find words to express my displeasure. You only command my vanguard and have no right to agree to an armistice without my orders. You will cost me the fruits of a campaign, end the armistice at once, and attack the enemy. Inform him that the general who has signed this has no power to make it, that only the Russian emperor has the right, and that when the Russian emperor ratifies this agreement, I will also ratify it. But it is only a ruse. March, destroy the Russian army. You are in a position to take this baggage and artillery. End quote. Ouch. The next day, November 16th, Murat informed Bagration that at 5 p.m. the armistice would end, and the French then sent wave after wave of frontal assaults at Bagration well into the night. Now, to Bagration's credit, though, he did execute a skillful retreat, and Murat was unable to capture the majority of the army. And this, as you would imagine, further incensed Napoleon who left Schönbrunn Palace that night in a fit of rage. The Battle of Hollenbrunn was a French victory, though it was one that Napoleon viewed as incomplete, and one that he felt he needed to finish off here and now. The following day, November 17th, Napoleon finally found out the news of Trafalgar. Now, how he wasn't incensed enough from the previous day's news and now this to set off fire to all of Vienna is beyond me, and a likely miracle in and of itself, but I digress. In any event, Napoleon began his censorship of the news almost immediately, writing back to the Conseil d'État to basically hide it for as long as possible and to never have it mentioned in any of the newspapers. 
And in fact, as we mentioned last week, it was rumored that many Frenchmen did not learn about Trafalgar until after his first abdication in 1814. Imagine keeping a major battle like Trafalgar a secret for nearly a decade. I mean, it is truly remarkable. Nevertheless, though, Napoleon's focus was clearly on finishing off the coalition forces, but he also needed to ensure that his supply lines were stabilized for any continued assault beyond Vienna. His requirements for garrisoning towns and protecting vital points along the supply route meant that he was down to just under 80,000 men by the end of November, including losses sustained in previous battles, and he still needed to march an additional 200 or so miles to make contact with the coalition forces. Now, from the outside, his army was stretched as thin as it could possibly be without completely collapsing. By some estimates, parts of his army had marched as many as 700 miles in six weeks, nearly 17 miles a day on average. What's more was that Prussia was in negotiations to join the coalition forces, but their king, Frederick William III, was viewed by many as timid, and he was also worried that Britain would not hand Hanover back to Prussia. Nevertheless, their ever-looming threat from the north, Kutuzov's forces nearing in the east, and Charles' forces coming up from the south, meant that Napoleon always had to be wary of complete encirclement. However, his cunning in the field, along with the generally poor communication between his enemies, always kept him one step ahead. Now, on November 20th, the French were able to take the town of Brun, present-day Bruno in the Czech Republic, which conveniently held critical stocks of ammunition and provisions for their hungry soldiers. Napoleon was well aware that the enemy was descending upon them, and so on November 21st, he stopped over at a small village about 10 miles south, near a large mound on the ground right outside of the tiny village now known as Slavkov, but then known as Austerlitz. Napoleon was enamored with the area, principally the two large lakes and wide areas of exposure that could be used to great effect in battle. And Napoleon ordered a large section to be dug out, facing the enemy position to increase its escarpment, and he carefully observed the area's high grounds principally the small plateau known as the Pratsen Heights. So convinced that the location would be used in a critical engagement, Napoleon declared to his staff, quote, Gentlemen, examine this ground carefully. It is going to be a battlefield, and you will have a part to play upon it. Napoleon also knew that the terrain, along with their specific location of the area, would be too enticing for the enemy to pass up. He knew that he had a perfect location to set up a trap, and that's precisely what he intended to do. He wasn't planning just an ordinary battle. He was planning to win the war right here and now. And unlike in World War I, his troops could actually be home for Christmas. The Russians and Austrians, however, believed that they had a sitting duck waiting to be annihilated, which is exactly what Napoleon was hoping for. They were planning to trap the French by marching their main army from the west from Olmutz with 86,000 men, while Archduke Ferdinand's army would march from the south to cut off Napoleon's exposed rearguard. Napoleon, though, remained at Bruno until November 28th, feigning his concern that his army was completely isolated and their troops were weak, unable to carry on the battle. Napoleon also wanted to give as much false information as possible, from sending envoys out to try and negotiate peace to positioning the troops of Murat, Soule, and Lon at Austerlitz to make it seem that their troop numbers were far smaller than what they really were. He also gave orders for his troops to retreat in front of the coalition forces, making it seem as though they were too scared to want to fight such a large engagement in an open field. 
I got to say, how Napoleon's enemies kept falling for his bait is just as impressive as the bait that Napoleon planted. But hey, that's exactly what 19th century warfare was all about. Napoleon also had the advantage that the coalition forces were apprehensive and wanted to strike the final blow, possibly impatiently. Through his intelligence, he learned that they were definitely on the offensive, and they didn't even bother waiting for 14,000 additional Russian reinforcements, believing that they could achieve their victory now. It was from here that he began to concentrate his forces while also simultaneously giving off the impression that his position was dire. With this in mind, Austrian Emperor Francis offered up an armistice on November 27th, to which Napoleon accepted, and on the same day ordered Marshal Soult to abandon Austerlitz and the Pratzen Heights, basically giving them to the enemy, while also making it seem as though there was general confusion amongst the ranks. The next day, Napoleon met Russian Tsar Alexander's aide-de-camp, Peter Petrovich Dolgoruki, on the Olmutz Road. The 27-year-old, hmm, how shall I say, stuck a brat, impetuously demanded that Napoleon give up Italy to the King of Sardinia and Holland to the Prussians or British. Napoleon, likely crying of laughter inside, made sure to feign retreat as Dolgoruki rode away so as to relay one more bit of false information to his officer corps. Writing of the encounter, Napoleon joked, quote, I had a conversation with this whippersnapper in which he spoke to me as if he would have spoken to a boyar that he was sending to Siberia. Napoleon then joked with one of his soldiers that the coalition forces believed that they were going to swallow them up whole. Quote, let them try it, the sentry replied. We should soon choke them. It was interactions like these that were exactly why Napoleon always had the better army. They knew what they were fighting for and who they were fighting for. And they had little doubt on either account. Napoleon then began to order his forces to concentrate. Marshal Marmont was at Graz, Mortier back in Vienna, Bernadotte in the rear keeping a lookout over Bohemia, Davout moving towards Pressburg, and Lens, Murat, and Soult were all spread out in the van near Austerlitz. With the coalition forces falling for Napoleon's trap, they began to close in on Austerlitz, completely unaware that in less than a week, they would be going into the annals of history as the losers in one of the greatest tactical masterpieces ever displayed on a battlefield. And so, finally, how did the masterpiece go down? Well, let's dive in. The three days prior to the Battle of Auschwitz were spent by the French reviewing the land in reconnaissance and entrenching the Santon Hillock on the north end of the battlefield with additional dirt that is still visible today in the town. Now, Napoleon's original plan was for Soult, Lom, and Murat to fight in a holding action, essentially faking an assault to learn the 87,000-strong army of the coalition, 70,000 of which were infantry and 17,000 cavalry. He would then have Marshals Davout and Bernadotte arrive, and then once it was clear the enemy was all in, Napoleon would have them attack their weak points. While Napoleon's force was significantly smaller, he totaled about 50,000 infantry and 15,000 cavalry, along with 282 guns, he was helped by the fact that he was able to concentrate the majority of his men at Austerlitz, while also not suffering from the poor communication which plagued the Allies. In fact, the Allies didn't even really know how many men the French had at their disposal, believing the French army to be much weaker and, as we mentioned before, in a state of pure dilapidation. But the French, as the Allies would soon come to find out, were in fact not in a sorry state of affairs 
but rather one that had the Allies right where they wanted them. Though, it should be noted, Napoleon, his hidden confidence notwithstanding, did understand the odds were still against the French, and he was not outwardly confident of victory. In fact, he wrote to Talleyrand only days before the battle to not mention it to anyone in case the French were defeated. And some historians also point to the fact that Napoleon personally dreaded a defeat in the event he would have to admit it to Josephine. Nevertheless, Napoleon would not retreat. And despite some of his marshals passively pushing for one, he did the complete opposite. And in one of his most famous strategic moves, he ordered the deliberate weakening of his right flank on November 28th so that Allied recon could see it and use it for an attack. Napoleon was begging them to come at him full steam. And realizing how good of an opportunity this was, the Allies, naturally, could not resist. Now, the Allied strategy was, relatively speaking, pretty straightforward. Recognizing, or rather misinterpreting, the importance of the now-abandoned Pratson Heights, the Allies wanted to center their attack plans on a quick and decisive victory while cutting off the French communication lines to Vienna by attacking their southern flank. Tsar Alexander was adamant about attacking the French, but Emperor Francis, having just recently fled his capital city, was more cautious, and he was also joined by Russian commanding general Kutuzov. But the Austrian War Council and Tsar Alexander would not be swayed, and the Allies decided to adopt the battle plan of General Franz von Weirother, famous for also drawing up the battle plans of the battles of Rivoli and Hohenlinden. I think we all remember how those two battles went, don't we? Anyway, the plan went as such. The Allies would concentrate their main force against the weakened right flank of the French, while they would send diversionary sorties to the French left to focus their attention there. Weyrother would then have General Friedrich von Buxhauden attack the French right, which was located in the south, with three of his five columns from the Prats and Heights, and then they would turn left, where they would then roll up on the entire French line as the rest of the army swarmed in. Now, the biggest issue with this, as we'll see in a minute, is that it concentrated too many men into one area, where they could be checked and picked off by a smaller, i.e. more mobile, French force, while leaving the Allied center completely vulnerable for attack, splitting it into two. Now, as I mentioned, General Kutuzov was vehemently against the strategy, but Tsar Alexander was impatient, young, and wanted to end the battle now, as well as score a little bit of personal glory for himself. He approved of the strategy and removed Kutuzov from command, though he would remain as a nominal commander because Alexander worried that he would need to take a field command should Weyrother's strategy fail. And, spoiler alert, well, we'll get to that in a second. As for the rest of the troops, the Russian Imperial Guard would remain in the rear and reserve, while Bagration's troops would guard the Allied right against the French left. Now, Napoleon's strategy was also relatively simple. But the difference was, was that it was coming from him and not from a war council with countless differing opinions on what the best move would be while the others half-heartedly agreed. Because as we mentioned, Napoleon inspired a certain camaraderie with his troops few others could relate to. Two days before the battle, for example, he slept in his carriage in the middle of the camp, right next to his soldiers, unheard of for an officer in 19th century European warfare. He told one of the Imperial Guardsmen that during the battle, he would keep his distance so long as victory was achieved, but reassured them that, quote, if by mischance you hesitate a moment, you will see me fly into your ranks to restore order. Regarding his strategy, Napoleon envisioned that by weakening his right, the Allies would concentrate their forces there, leaving their center and left 
vulnerable. He would conceal his main force behind a dead ground opposite of the Pratson Heights, and, when called upon, would launch their main assault on the Heights, recapture them, and then launch a decisive assault on the Allied center from the rear, encircling them. Napoleon was so certain that if the Allies left the Heights to attack the French right, victory would be theirs. Quote, if the Russian forces leave the Pratson Heights in order to go to the right side, they will certainly be defeated, he said. Now, Napoleon would also rely on the terrain and the weather to his advantage, as there was a thick fog on the day of the battle, which proved critical in concealing the size of his forces. But had the fog lifted too soon, his forces, specifically the Fourth Corps under Marshal Soult, would have been exposed and the battle plan thrown into complete disarray. Now, having said all of that, Napoleon still did have to support his weak right flank in some capacity. If it completely collapsed, the Allied plan would actually be successful, and the French would be vulnerable to envelopment. Because of this, he ordered Marshal Davout's legendary Third Corps, Napoleon famously declared them his 10th legion, in reference to Julius Caesar's finest unit, the 10th Equestris, up from Vienna to help the right flank, which would be commanded by General Claude Legrand's 3rd Division from Soult's 4th Corps. Now, marching up to Auschwitz in less than 48 hours, Davout's Third Corps would play an important role in the upcoming fighting. Indeed, Davout's arrival was crucial to the French success because he was probably Napoleon's finest marshal, and their right flank, while deliberately weakened, still had far too many soldiers to prevent a complete overrun of the position. Napoleon was still confident in this strategy, especially because there were streams and lakes near their right flank that could help in facilitating a retreat back to Brunn if needed. And so with all this established, November turned into December, and zero hour was within sight. On December 1st, the French troops were stationed in accordance with the Allied troop movements, precisely what Napoleon had expected would happen. Now, as far as a pregame goes, Napoleon's strategy to this point had worked flawlessly. Marshal Bernadotte was at nearby Brune, and he was going to be in an ideal position to assist with the rear. That night, in a thick fog, Napoleon went from camp to camp, speaking with his soldiers and having one last dinner before the battle, to be held on the one-year anniversary of his coronation. As far as poetic symbolism goes, that's, well, that's about as perfect as it gets. And this likely added to their enthusiasm. The soldiers were confident in their ability to win the battle. And as Napoleon strode back to his camp, all along the way, the men shouted, quote, Vive l'Empereur! Napoleon even joked to one of the soldiers that, should his plan break down, he would expose himself to enemy fire and do his part. The soldier scoffed at him and shouted back confidently, quote, We promise you, you'll only have to fight with your eyes tomorrow. At 4 a.m. on Monday, December 2nd, 1805, the first French movements were made in the Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon ordered his men into their initial positions on the battlefield, aided, as we mentioned earlier, by a thick fog that had settled over the area. The fog was crucial in concealing the French troop placements, and it befuddled the Allied High Command, who were wary of Napoleon's intentions to begin with. And in order to continue to sow confusion within the Allied leadership, many of the French units lit their campfires as they were leaving to go into position to further conceal their troop locations. At 6 a.m., Napoleon called his high command of marshals of Murat, Bernadotte, Besseret, Berthier, Lan, and Soult, Davout was still marching from Vienna, remember, to his field headquarters on a small hill to the center left of the battlefield called the Zoran. 
He spoke frankly to his men and gave them each their orders and what was expected of them in battle. By 7.30 a.m., the meeting concluded and each marshal left to attend to their respective corps. In terms of the order of the battle, Bernadotte's first corps and the Imperial Guard were to be held in reserve, though Bernadotte would hold up the lay Austrian attack on the center. Lon and the 5th Corps would guard the northern sector, i.e. the French left of the battlefield, which was where the new communication line was to be located. And then finally, Sewell and his 4th Corps would be lying in wait until the order was given to attack the Allied center. With the fog heavy and dense, his positioning with his 16,000 troops proved ideal. Then came General Legrand's division from Sewell's 4th Corps, who would take the brunt of the right flank assault, and then moved to the center to hold off any Allied attack there with Bernadotte's assistance. Finally, Napoleon also added Marshal Wiedenow's Grenadiers and Murat's cavalry in reserve, either as an emergency force against the Allied assault on the right flank, or to clean up the scraps on the Allied center once the Pratzen Heights had been recaptured. Either way, Napoleon figured that their use would be needed in some capacity. Quote, You engage, and then you wait and see, he said to his men. Just after 7 a.m., before Napoleon's conference with his marshals had even ended, the first shots of the battle were heard. As expected, the Allies began their assault on the right flank, with Sewell leaving the conference in haste to get into position with his men. The Allies began their attack on the French at Telnitz, with Le Grand bearing the initial burst of the assault, but he was able to hold his ground initially thanks to the fighting of his Third Line Regiment. Nevertheless, the Allied thrust was too much, and the French were forced to abandon the town and flee across the freezing waters of the Goldbach River, situated behind Telnitz. Soult, meanwhile, moved his men north to Puntowitz for their main assault on the Allied center. By 8 a.m., just as Napoleon had expected, the Russians, who did the majority of the fighting at Auschwitz, by the way, moved off the Pratzen Heights to assist in the assault on the right flank. Allied columns now began to pour in against the French right, as expected, but they did so at a relatively slow speed, and this allowed the French to stop the bleeding, if only marginally. Davout, who had marched nearly 70 miles in two days, arrived and helped to stop the Allied advance and then ordered a counterattack to retake Telnitz and the second target of the Allied assault, Skolenitz, which lay behind the Goldbach River. Personally leading the attack, Davout was able to recapture the small village by 8.45 a.m. before receiving an urgent message from Legrand's men at Telnitz and he sent his brother-in-law, General Louis Fruyon, with the 108th line to charge at the village and recapture it from the mainly Russian column. Fruyon's men of the 2nd Division, who at one point dwindled down to just over 3,000 men, fought valiantly, and although they were stretched dangerously thin, they did not break. And after heavy fighting, the French were successful in retaking Telnitz from the Russians. Skolenitz, however, was less easy to hold on to for the French, and the small village is generally accepted as the most contested area of the entire battle. Changing hands several times throughout the course of the day, just after 9 a.m., the village was defended by two of Legrand's demi-brigades, one of them being the Tuileries Corps, a Corsican unit which was nicknamed the Emperor's Cousins. The two demi-brigades went up against 12 Russian battalions of Russian infantry, but with superior maneuverability, they were able to send five of them into full retreat. By 9.30 a.m., however, the Russians would retake Skolenitz, storming the village's castle and having neutralized 11 of the 12 senior commanders of the French in the town. Now, while all of this was going on, Russian General Kutuzov's 4th Corps was moved into position atop the Pratzen Heights, and he ordered his men to stay there, understanding its vital position to winning the battle. 
However, Tsar Alexander, in a critical blunder, was not convinced the area would be necessary, and he ordered the Fourth Corps to evacuate the heights. Napoleon now saw his chance to send the Allies to their fate. Now, backing up in time a little bit, while the struggle for the right flank raged at Skoll and its intelments, Napoleon grew impatient back at his headquarters at the Zoran. After seeing the Russian columns now completely abandoning the heights, he asked Marshal Sewell at 8.45 how long it would take him to march to the Pratson Heights. Quote, Less than 20 minutes, sire, was his reply. At 9 a.m., Napoleon gave him the order to commence with the assault, famously declaring, quote, One sharp blow, and the war is over. Let us finish it with a thunderclap. The attack began almost immediately, with the advance of General Louis Bisson Joseph Leblanc de Saint-Hilaire's division. We'll just refer to him as Saint-Hilaire moving forward. Saint-Hilaire's men were well hidden by the thick fog, but it was seen as a divine intervention. As they were climbing up the hill, the fog broke, and the sun of Austerlitz appeared, as it was called, inspiring the men and pushing them forward. Marshal Soult then ordered the tent légère, with brandy rations in hand, of course, up the slope. Napoleon employed the Ode Mixte, a combination of line and columns to attack, with the line skirmishes out in front. Now these men charged straight into the Russians' 4th Corps, who were still moving off the heights, to their utter astonishment. And Kutuzov, frozen with surprise to see so many French moving towards his men, ordered an Austrian regiment to plug the gaps, which then led to bitter fighting. Over the following hour, fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat was employed, with few prisoners being taken and with even fewer wounded soldiers leaving the hill alive. It was a literal fight for survival, and both sides fought for every inch. Allied commanders, obviously now desperate to find a solution, sent inexperienced, mostly Austrian, regiments down the slopes against some of the best French soldiers, nearly driving them off the hill, but Saint-Hilaire's men were too determined to go back down the hill and bayoneted their way back up the top, eventually taking the Pratzen Heights by 11.30 a.m. and retrieving any lost weapons to prevent any possible counterattack. Soult then sent in additional reinforcements to help stabilize the center, with the 57th line, Le Terrible, distinguishing themselves in the ensuing skirmishes. Now at this point, I can only imagine the face of horror that now brandished Kutuzov's face as he watched column after French column storm up the Pratzen Heights like workers on an anthill. What had been a substantial Allied advantage to start this battle was now dwindling rapidly, and there were nearly 25,000 Frenchmen engaged against some 12,000 Allied troops on the heights, now overrunning them. Napoleon then ordered Bernadotte's regiment to advance and assist in the assault. When Bernadotte requested cavalry assistance, Napoleon replied succinctly, quote, I have none to spare. Again, you can just see how much the two loathed each other, even in the most heated of battles. Now to the north and the French left, General Dominique Vendôme's division distinguished themselves by launching several volleys and breaking multiple Allied battalions eventually reaching the Stare Vinorati on the Pratzen Heights, which was the headquarters of Tsar Alexander. Sensing his own danger, Alexander ordered his brother, Grand Duke Constantine, to counterattack, and he poured in 30,000 men with cavalry of the Russian Imperial Guard to face Vendôme. Completely outmanned, Vendôme's division was overrun, and in this struggle, the French would lose a battle standard, the only one they would lose, which was surrendered by the fourth line of the division. And according to the report, they had the wherewithal to yell out, Vive l'Empereur, as they fled by Napoleon's headquarters atop the Zoran Heights. Sensing now that the Allies were beginning to stabilize, Napoleon then moved his headquarters to the St. Anthony's Chapel atop the Pratzen Heights and ordered his own Imperial Guards cavalry forward under the command of Marshal Besseret. 
Napoleon's Imperial Guardsmen were clearly the superior fighters, and they thoroughly thrashed their Russian counterparts. But just after 1 p.m., with bitter fighting and numerous cavalry units on the battlefield, victory was unclear for either side. Having said that, with all that had transpired over the previous five hours, it was clear that the battle had firmly swung in favor of the French. And soon, it wouldn't even be a question. Now, while much of the melee was going on, General Jean-Baptiste Drouet, who would become a Marshal of France in 1843, eight months prior to his death, of Bernadotte's First Corps, was deployed in the flank of the action, which allowed for many of the cavalrymen to find cover and seek relief. Given some respite, the reinvigorated French cavalry then thrashed their Russian counterparts, inflicting heavy casualties and even wounding General Kutuzov and killing his son-in-law. The French then pursued the Russians for over a quarter mile, decimating their numbers. To the far north, Marshals Murat and Lomme engaged Russian General Bagration and, with equally bitter fighting, were able to drive him off the field as well. Lon had wanted to pursue him to finish them off, but Murat decided against it, preferring to keep his cavalry close by in the event it was needed further south. In the end, it hardly mattered. By 1.30 p.m., the battle's outcome was with little doubt. With the north and center now firmly stabilized and the Pratts and Heights captured, Napoleon could finally turn his attention to the south, that is, his right flank, the one he deliberately weakened to start this whole affair. Because even after five hours, there was still heavy fighting over the towns of Skull and its entailments, and Napoleon wanted to end the battle, as well as the war, now. He ordered Widno, Soult, and the Imperial Guard south to assist Saint-Hilaire and Davou. Using a double-pronged assault, Saint-Hilaire and Davou were finally able to smash through the Allied lines of Skull and its, and made the commanders of their first two columns, old friend General Keenmeyer and General Lagaron, flee as quickly as possible. In a memorable scene, Buxhauden, who was commanding the Allied left, fled as well, completely drunk and wanting to be nowhere near the French onslaught. With the South now firmly in French control, a general chaos ensued as the Allied soldiers fled the battlefields in all directions. One of the most famous episodes of the Battle of Austerlitz occurred during the retreat. The Russian force under Buxhauden was split into two and fled east, encountering and then running over frozen lakes and rivers. Napoleon, observing his masterpiece from St. Anthony's Chapel, ordered his artillery to open fire on the fleeing Russians, their cannonballs hitting the ice and causing numerous soldiers and cannons to fall into the freezing water. The myth went that thousands of Russians drowned and froze to death once the ice cracked, though recent dives have only recovered a few dozen bodies and a couple of cannons. Reports at the time had also stated that many French soldiers in pursuit of the fleeing Russians did help others out of the water and took them prisoner, while also seizing some of the cannons before they completely sank to the depths. So, the true number of Russians dead in this incident will never truly be known. What we do know is that the event did happen. Tsar Alexander witnessed it and wrote about it in his memoirs well after the Napoleonic Wars. Regardless of the true number of fatalities, however, the incident was a perfect encapsulation of the battle itself. A complete and total French victory, while the Allies watched their hopes of crushing Napoleon sink to the bottom of a frozen lake. After the dust had settled on the battlefield, with smoke still billowing from around the Prats and Heights, Napoleon gazed over the aftermath of the greatest victory of his career. That night, he returned to the Staraposta and was recorded by Division General Marassin Marbeau as being, quote, radiant, but frequently expressed regret that the fourth line, whose honorary colonel was Napoleon's brother Joseph, had lost their coveted battle standard. 
So infuriated was he with the incident that the following day, in a briefing to his army, he berated the soldiers who had the standard fallen enemy hands. But his praise for the rest of the army was nothing short of legendary. Quote, Soldiers of the Grand Armée, even at this hour before this great day shall pass away and be lost in the ocean of eternity, your emperor must address you and say how satisfied he is with the conduct of all those who have had the good fortune to fight in this memorable battle. Soldiers, you are the finest warriors in the world. The recollection of this day and of your deeds will be eternal. Thousands of ages hereafter, as long as the events of the universe continue to be related, will it be told that a Russian army of 76,000 men, hired by the gold of England, was annihilated by you on the plains of Olmutz. Napoleon compensated his men graciously for their efforts. Each of the higher officers received upwards of 2 million golden francs, and each soldier received 200 francs. Widows were given large pensions for their fallen husbands, and Napoleon ceremoniously adopted thousands of orphan children who were then allowed to use his name in both their baptismal and familial names. It was as if, in an instant, he turned an entire country into worshipping a god, and with good timing, because only a few days prior, France had been on the brink of financial collapse and was restless with no news coming back from the war front. But after news of Auschwitz became known in Paris, the country was said to have been transformed into a state of euphoria. Napoleon, writing to Josephine rather humbly, said, quote, I have beaten the Russian and Austrian army commanded by the two emperors. I am a little tired. I have bivouacked eight days in the open air with the nights rather cool. The Russian army is not merely beaten. It is destroyed. I embrace you. The Allied reaction was, to no one's surprise, quite different. Tsar Alexander, who after the battle fled to Hungary, summed up the Allied defeat, quote, We are babies in the hands of a giant. Emperor Francis was not present at Auschwitz, but he would meet Napoleon personally a few weeks later to sign the peace between Austria and France. But we'll get to those events in next week's episode, in addition to longer-term ramifications of Auschwitz. After receiving word of their defeat, British Prime Minister William Pitt pointed to a map of Europe and said, candidly, quote, Roll that map up. It will not be wanted these 10 years. Now, as for the casualties and the war prizes, the numbers have varied over the years due to the notorious overinflation by Napoleon, as well as the difficulty of having accurate numbers for a battle that is over 200 years old, but the general estimates are as follows. The Austrian and Russians killed and wounded stood at 16,000, including nine generals and 293 officers, as well as 20,000 captured. In addition, some 186 guns and 400 ammunition wagons, along with 45 battle standards, were captured by the French. Out of a force of nearly 90,000 men, this put their losses at somewhere close to 33%, a staggering number for an army as large as the one the Allies produced on that cold December day. Now, the French, by contrast, lost just over 8,000 men, of which 1,300 were killed and an additional 2,500 needing long-term care for their wounds. Out of an army of just over 65,000, the French losses stood at around 13%. Significant, sure, but not nearly as disastrous as the numbers suffered by the Allies. In the end, an army with 25,000 more men was dealt a defeat to a French Grand Armée that now would enter the ocean of time 
as one of its greatest fighting forces. Then nearly 218 years later, the battle still stands the test of time. The Battle of Austerlitz was undoubtedly Napoleon's masterpiece, though by his own admission, he didn't thrash the Allies as thoroughly as he had hoped. Nevertheless, it continues to be included in the lists of greatest tactical masterpieces in military history, right up there with the Battle of Canning in 216 BC, the Battle of Gagamela 115 years prior to that, and the Allied invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. Sure, there was a bit of luck involved, as there always is, the fog was an indispensable part in concealing Sewell's men, and the generally poor leadership of the top Allied commanders led to utter confusion once Napoleon's ruse had been realized. But it shouldn't take away from the utter brilliance it took Napoleon to realize that in his huge gamble of weakening his right flank and abandoning the critical Pratsen Heights, he had his enemies exactly where he wanted them. The battle has been romanticized and written about countless times, and Napoleon's reign received a massive amount of interest in the late 19th century, it's a sort of Napoleonic renaissance centered around his battle plan at Austerlitz. The battle itself has almost surpassed its tactical brilliance into a sort of ancient myth. And ironically, some historians have actually painted Austerlitz, Napoleon's crowning achievement, as the start of his downfall. He believed that the victory he scored so convincingly that day left him almost delirious, believing he was sent by Providence for a greater purpose and that he was nearly invincible. In short, it can be surmised that he began to lose touch with reality. But Austerlitz was no myth, and Austerlitz was not the end of Napoleon's pursuit of European domination, though it certainly played a pivotal role in it. In next episode, we're going to do a deeper dive into the immediate and long-term effects that Austerlitz had on Europe, France, and on Napoleon. Because while this episode of Austerlitz is over, the battle never really is. It lives on in the human consciousness as one of history's greatest moments. And next week, we'll talk about how the world is gripped with the reality of this moment and the moments still to come.